Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. This is Nashville. I'm Nina Cardona, filling in for your host, Khalil Ecolona. When the pandemic made traditional concerts an impossibility, a local contemporary orchestra called Intersection decided to switch gears. They launched a project to share new music by female and genderqueer composers through online video. And they found a lot of that music right here in Nashville. That's because this city is increasingly home to a diverse group of people writing classical music that's complex, thought-provoking, and truly new. Later this hour, we're going to meet a few of those composers and find out how Nashville became such a hub. But first, it's been more than two and a half years since families and friends lost the ability to visit their loved ones in person at Nashville's jail. The change was one of many COVID precautions, and it meant that phone calls and video visitations became the norm for incarcerated people. The expectation was that in-person visiting would eventually return, but that's yet to happen And it's unclear when or if it ever will. WPLN contributor Laura Dean has been looking into this and joins us now. Laura, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So there's been a lot of coverage about how COVID impacted people who were incarcerated. And we know that facilities were locked down for a long time. But what's the status on visitation? So in state-run prisons, it's been back for a while. But for Nashville's jails, it's still just video calls. They're scheduled in advance and cost $5 for a 20-minute call. A family member can do them from their phone or computer at home, and the incarcerated person is at a video console in the common area of the jail. This is the kind of thing that's easy not to think about if, you're, aren't, if you aren't connected to the justice system in some way, but for anyone with a family member awaiting trial or serving out a sentence, it's a huge deal. So was the shift of video just because of the pandemic, or what kind of conversations were happening before then? So Nashville's main jail downtown is new and was being built right before and during the pandemic. And as part of the planning for the new jail, visitation was discussed among sheriffs and attorneys and advocates. Um, And the original plan was a mix of the two, so both video and in-person visitation. Um, According to a report by the Prison Policy Initiative, 74% of jails across the country that introduce video calls eliminate in-person visits. Uh, This is not true of prisons, which are run by states um, that tend to keep both. So activists here were worried and wanted to talk about this at the time. Um, And then when the pandemic hit and in-person visits were halted, since then, they've been wondering what would happen next. Now, one thing that you found while reporting feels really relatable to, I think, all of us after the pandemic, and it's this question of whether video calls are a good enough way to truly connect with people. What did you hear from folks about this? So Sheriff Darren Hall says that many people in jail are in their 20s, and his impression is that this generation prefers to communicate using technology, so texting, phone, and video over in person. Um, But a lot of others I spoke to disagree. So for one, many of these visits are intergenerational. So maybe it's a 20-something talking to an older parent or an incarcerated parent talking to a child or partners bringing in young children. And also the incarcerated people I talked to said they wanted that in-person human connection. I also spoke to Don Diener, who's the former Davidson County Public Defender and Executive Director of the Choosing Justice Initiative, and she emphasized the lack of human connection over video. I want you to hear just how different the views between Sheriff Hall and Diener are. Here they are. The generation lives that way. They have girlfriends and boyfriends and family members and loved ones and Thanksgivings and everything else done that way. 
I think COVID has taught us all that video conferencing is no substitute for in-person conversations. You know, the warmth that you feel from somebody just to see them. This is part of the divide. And one thing sheriffs say is, we got a lot of complaints about people only getting to see their families through glass rather than what are called contact visits. But families tend to say, well, if it's between through glass and a video screen, we'll take the glass. Now, I want to stick with this a little bit longer. Um, what are some of the other things that are taking place when families call? And, and do they have any other concerns? So families often want to check on their loved one's physical well-being, which is much harder over a grainy video on a small screen. There's also a complete lack of privacy, whether incarcerated people want to talk over legal decisions with their families or sensitive family issues. All calls are monitored and can be can and are used against them in court. Um, and they're talking on video inside the jail with other incarcerated people just kind of walking by. Um, another factor is the length of time that people are staying in jail. So technically, jails are mostly for people waiting to go to trial, but that can take years. And then there are also facilities, like in Nashville, that have ended up being a sort of hybrid of people awaiting trial, but also some who've been convicted and stay one to six years in that jail instead of being moved to a state prison. Laura, you got to know one mother in particular, and you've got to sit alongside her as she was calling her incarcerated son. She asked that we not name her out of fear of retribution for her or for her son, so we're calling her Tina. She'd run into some technical problems before, like not being able to hear him. When I did the two video calls before, I didn't get to, ne- I didn't get to talk to my son. I didn't hear his voice. I could just see his mouth move. So we was trying to do sign language. Like I try to say, like, I love you. I, and I was patting my chest real hard. Love you. That's so hard for a mother. Um, You got to be there when she tried the video system this most recent time. How'd that go? She had low expectations, but she did her best. Um, Her son called her on the phone first to make sure she had the technology part figured out. And it was a genuinely exciting moment when his face appeared. Hey, can you hear me? Oh, yes. Okay, good. (laughs) Good, good, good. I love you. You look so handsome. You can hear how excited she was. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) But the rest of the call wasn't perfect. It was glitchy and the image was grainy. And it was only 20 minutes long, so they got cut off mid-conversation. So clearly there are a lot of shortcomings. But you also said that a lot of jails have made this change to eliminate in-person visits and just rely on video calls. Can you say more about why that trend has been so widespread? So for sheriffs running jails, there's a convenience factor. With the pandemic staffing shortages, it's easier for them not to have to staff in-person visits um, because for those, the incarcerated person needs to be escorted to the right spot and that sort of thing. Um, but the, And there's also a money-making component. Everywhere these calls cost money, ev- right, everywhere um, that they're used, these calls cost money that go to the private company that provides the software. In other cities, not in Nashville, there have been arrangements where the jail or the city gets a share of the cost of each call. Um, And one of the big companies that provides the video software is called Securus. And they've been at the center of a number of controversies involving charging exorbitant fees for calls and recording conversations between attorneys and their clients, that kind of thing. What about safety? Is that a factor in how these visits are conducted? 
So this does come up. Um, Jail officials say that not having to move people around for in-person visiting can cut down on security incidents. But some reports have argued that, in fact, the lack of in-person visits can actually lead to more violent incidents inside the jail because seeing family can provide a sense of hope and stability for people. Um, And some make the case that eliminating visits cuts down on drugs and contraband getting smuggled in. And the pandemic actually has shown us that that's not true. Rates of contraband in prison soared during COVID lockdowns. So for now, you learned that there is no immediate plan for in-person visitation to return. So what will you be watching for next? It's very gray right now. We're in this moment where it's a little hard to tell what is a policy left over from the pandemic that will eventually go back to how it was and what's here to stay. The sheriff said there's no demand for in-person visiting. And in the absence of that, he sees no reason to go back to it. But at the same time, they're not advertising it as a potential option. They haven't surveyed incarcerated people or families. Um, And the sheriff also says he's open to reinstating it if there's a demand. Advocates and families I spoke to said that video was no substitute for in-person and that they would like to see it reinstated as soon as possible. So we'll see what happens. That was WPLN contributor Laura Dean, whose story about video visitation in jails is online today at WPLN.org. Thanks for being here, Laura. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll turn to the sound of Nashville from folks who deal in cellos, choirs, and giant Chinese zithers instead of fiddles and guitars. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Nina Cardona, and this is Nashville. Did you know that the most popular music venue in Nashville used to be an opera house? It was back in the 19th century, well before the Ryman was built. Classical music may not be the sound this city is known for, but it has a long history here. And more than ever, composers in Music City are taking the classical genre in new directions. Now, if your image of a classical composer is an old white dude, well, sure, there have been plenty of those. And there still are. But increasingly, Nashville's composers are women and people of color. They're Tennessee natives and immigrants from the other side of the globe. And that diversity is reflected in the music that they write. Let's meet some of those composers now. I'd like to welcome Larissa Maestro, Dave Raglan, and Wu Fei. Thank you all for being here. Thanks for having us. Faye. Glad to be here. Yeah, thank you. Faye, I'd love to start with you. You grew up in Beijing, and I understand that music was part of your life starting at a very young age. What was your relationship and experience of music like back then? Um, well, I started. Uh, it was my choice to be uh, to be to be to be honest with. Um, I was chosen to become a musician or to become a music pupil uh, when I was two years old. Wow. <laughs> Told by my parents later, of course, um, and uh, so because in China the old tradition of even choosing a potential music pupil was a long process. Uh, it's not only um, you as a ch- the child wanting to learn, but also the family must be committed. So the music professor and the music masters must see all these factors to accept you as a, a, to, you know, to inherit uh, this, this school of learning or the, the, so I was, yeah, I was very young. I was a, a, literally a baby. Uh, and then when I uh, turned five, that's when I started to learn the Gu Zheng. And then when I turned seven, started the piano. Uh, so, and then just went down this path. 
Um, um, had a complex relationship for sure, because, you know, as a child, you there's not your, you know, nature to want to sit there for two hours a day for the <laughs> right. next 10 years to do this. <laughs> well, you didn't have a choice as a young child, but at some point it did become a choice for you. When did you know that you wanted to pursue a career in this? Not that just that it was something told to you, but this is what you actually wanted for yourself and to become a composer. Um, I, well, when I became a composer, I was a teenager. I entered the China Conservatory of Music uh, as a composition major. And that's when I knew that was going to be my path. But I didn't know uh, that writing music was supposed to be for myself. Writing music back then was for me it was to pursue a better life, to get a nicer job because China has a very different um, system in terms of uh, music institution, performing art troops. There's a lot of well-off, paid, very stable jobs. Your your work is just to show up in a music office studio, compose, produce concerts, and you're paid on payroll and with benefit. <laughs> and so that was uh, all my teachers and uh, my parents patron me. Uh, uh, so did I. Um, however, when I came to the States out of curiosity, I knew because China was opening up uh, very fast, although uh, and uh, my school was also one of the most um, um kind of uh, internationally uh, interacting with the rest of the world, uh, the kind of music school. So I was fascinated by um, all the information, all the new people uh, from teachers, from uh, students from the UK, from Australia or Hungary or Japan. I, w- I met them and I, I was curious about the world. And then when I, uh, and then when uh, eventually I came to the States to continue my uh, music study and during my study, really at the, uh, my graduate study at Mills College in California, I um, hit a wall basically first to uh, realize, oh, I had spent 20, nearly 20 years of my life uh, writing music, not, not for myself. Uh, so, and then at that moment, I realized, okay, uh, I, I need to give it a try, actually. Really, I... I have a pair of strong wings, but I haven't used them yet to fly. Oh, that's a beautiful <laughs> so, image. <laughs> so that that was, uh, you know, I have been like just kind of a walking around on the cliff. I was like, well, is that? So, but actually, the bird's job is to fly, and I, I so that was the moment I said, uh, I'm gonna, yeah, actually test my wings. Um, so since then, I've uh, haven't been having a blast uh, creating music, and then. Just to really kind of turn that complex uh, relationship with music, which was not about happiness. It was about just to, you know, conquer the, the pressure to climb the ivory tower, uh, to uh, coming around to the, the, the world where uh, I found myself. I was enjoy playing music, making music, letting go all the structures that uh, which actually benefit I benefit from to this day uh, mm-hmm. that I, I can just thrive to utilize the, the uh, foundation of the structure and then the techniques to to serve my dream to have my imagination come true. Larissa, you also got your start at a pretty young age. How, tell us about your experience. How, how did music begin for you? Uh, I started uh, the piano and the violin when I was five. Um, and I loved the piano, but I hated the violin Mm. a lot. Um, it was painful, like physically (laughs) Oh wow! to to play, uh, because you know, it's a box right next to your head. 
uh, and it's <laughs> right. really right. loud and high. Um, and uh, I started begging for cello lessons. I begged my parents for cello lessons for a whole year from the time I was like five and a half to when I was six and a half. And they finally gave in and let me start to take cello lessons at, at seven. And it, that was just, I fell in love with that instrument. And it was, uh, it, I'm still in love with that instrument. Uh, it's still my my primary uh, breadwinning instrument. Um, and I've started in the Suzuki method. So uh, it's, it's very much uh, based around ear training and uh, performing in groups, learning in groups, learning together. Um, and it, I thrived in that environment quite a bit. Uh, and I think I there was never really a question aside from uh, a short time when I desperately wanted to be a paleontologist that I I would I wanted to be in the arts that I wanted to be making music. It was sort of uh, I I don't have a memory aside from that short time in fifth grade <laughs> of <laughs> we not just wanting to be a dinosaur a moment, huh? Oh yeah, we well I went to Dinosaur National Monument and oh, I was well, like this well, is there super you cool. Yeah. <laughs> so. So you knew, you knew you were an artist, you knew music was the thing for you, but what, where did composing come from for you? I was always making up songs all the time. I was always making up music all the time um, and uh, getting my friends together to like arrange a piece of music I thought was cool for a weird uh, instrumentation. Uh, when I was in middle school, I, this, I don't know whether this was when the Ken Burns Civil War documentary came out, but I became obsessed with uh, that piece of Shokin Farewell from mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that series. And I arranged it for like cello and like clarinet. And because that's <laughs> those are the instruments that me and my friends played and we performed it in my seventh grade talent show. Uh, and I just was so thrilled by it and it was so much fun. Uh, and I just continued to like write little things. I was also a, a really huge fan of film music. My father taught a visual communication class at Cornell and I would help him put together clips for his class. And the, the music was always my favorite part. And, uh, I, that was, it was just, it just made sense to want to start making those things and to make them your own it and make like. them mine. Yeah. yeah. So now Dave, you've been here a long time. You were originally from Chattanooga. That's where you got your start working for the Chattanooga Symphony, the opera, and the ballet. How did you know that you wanted to make your career as a composer? Well, I would say that I was, I, I mean, I grew up like a lot of um, black uh, musicians and composers um, with a strong church influence. And so, you know, being with my grandparents and my parents at Rosa Sharon Missionary Baptist in Chattanooga and New Monumental um, Missionary Baptist in Chattanooga as well, uh, seeing those musical influences, um, you know, every Sunday is like a lesson from, you know, V.J. Caldwell playing the saxophone or Miss Sarah Haney or Ida, you know, Smallwood leading the senior choir. And I didn't realize that, like, those were really kind of like my first music lessons. Mm, um, mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. So, you know, that influence kind of seeped in subconsciously, and I still think it kind of shows up uh, today today in my writing. Well, when did it become that switch from you from, I want to make music like these people do, I want to make music with these people at church or, you know, wherever, to I want to write music. Yeah. I want to start it from scratch myself. I would say I got the bug 
well, the seed was planted when I went to Tennessee State University, and I was taken in by um, Miss Diana Poe, who um, fabulous classical soprano and and choral conductor, and, and at that time. She was head of the Tennessee State University Showstoppers. Mm-hmm. Um, with her, she's very much about versatility and, you know, versimilitude. And we're going to do jazz here and gospel. And that's and, a choir group, right? Like a show choir? Right, show yeah. choir. Yeah, show choir. But like we did the spirituals mm-hmm. and we're doing Handel and we're doing, you know, everything opera, everything. Like. Right. So with her influence, it's like, okay, you know, I like this. Let me look into it some more. And so that seed got planted there, and then it came around like maybe 12 years later um, when I joined you know, Phi Mu Alpha uh, at Tennessee State University. And they the were music like, fraternity? The music fraternity, right. And um, and they were like, hey, Dave, we heard that you compose. I'm like, where did y'all hear that from? Nobody <laughs> knows this. So like, we want you all to you know, do to create some things for us and all of that. And it's like, that kind of reeled me back into so it. So there was a need and, and you, you filled it. Right. <laughs> Apparently so. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville. And I'm Nina Cardona. We're talking with local composers, Larissa Maestro, Dave Raglan, and Wu Fei. And I'd like to talk a little bit now about your music. So Fei, tell us about your style. Oh, wow. Um, hmm. I know it's a big question. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a, maybe I would say a, a contemporary, if you like food, I would say it's a contemporary um, global um, cuisine that's uh, rooted with uh, Chinese flavor spices. <laughs> oh, um, that's actually a beautiful it, <laughs> explanation there. You know, it's like, uh, I would think I, I love melodies. Um I, my training, um, also, uh, I, I grew up writing for uh, chamber orchestra, uh, symphony. So I liked, I also am an improviser as well on the guzheng or any instrument. Um, so it's definitely guzheng, the Chinese zither, has, uh, has a, is my main instrument. And uh, um, somehow, um, it's, um, yeah, it's just like the, with a strong flavor of Chinese traditional uh, sound, Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, but uh, and because of my my experience of traveling around the world and I love cultures from um, everywhere I went to that uh, I would uh, I love what they offer also from their culture in terms of sounds or uh, style or story just like their spices so yeah. every time I travel I I, I I collect a little bit of their their spices and well, think mm, maybe this kind of will taste a little good with the Chinese pepper let me just make it oh wow it's a new dish <laughs> well and that is what I would think of when I think of your music is kind of that intersection between cultures. So so let's hear some of it right now. This is called May Apples. You composed this back in April on the Guzheng, which is a Chinese zither. Let's listen. inspired this piece uh since the pandemic i've been uh just you know the, the world stopped uh it's nature actually i've been hiking every day in the i live in the forest uh so 
I never paid so much attention to、uh, trees, mushrooms, leaves, birds, insects.、Um, but it has been so amazing. Every day, even you walk on the same tra-、uh, trail, they all look different. So it was、uh, inspired by、uh, May apple leaves. Uh, at one kind of a, a spring day, they were all over. They only, you know, certain plants only are there for two weeks, sometimes maybe two months,、uh, and then they're gone. So、uh, when I saw those uh, uh, May apple leaves,、uh, they look like immediately remind me of、uh, some pictures from Dr. Seuss books, and uh, so uh, and that just took me somewhere and、uh, wanting to create a just like an image in my own head and story. Well. The, the the those leaves, those big, giant, interesting looking leaves, walking out of Dr. Seuss pages, <laughs> and they're in my forest, <laughs> right out of Dr. Seuss. Well, Dave, let, let, to talk about your music, I think when I think back to some of the first things that I've heard of your music, it, it takes me to church, really,、uh, and and I know that you said your 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 roots come out of that church music. What other inspirations have you pulled into your style, and and what do you Hope that people hear from your music. Well,、um, like I said before, you know, harking back to、um, my my mentor, Miss Diana Poe,、uh, I pull from you know jazz.、Um, I pull from classical,、uh, you know, gospels. There,、um, I'm very much、uh, you know big fan of、uh, Margaret Bonds and Julia Perry and Clarence Cameron White and R. Nathaniel Dett,、uh, and also musical theater too as well. So it's. Uh, you'll you'll find、uh, an inspiration from <laughs> somewhere, <laughs> from one of those. Yeah. In 2020, the Nashville Opera commissioned an opera commemorating the centennial of women's suffrage, and you worked with librettist Mary McCallum. It was called "One Vote One," and let's listen to a little bit of that. Into, what went into this music for you? Well, so this is for One Vote One,、uh, the opera with Nashville Opera,、um, where John Hume said that he wanted to tell a story about voting and the right to vote,、uh, but coming from a perspective of people who we don't really talk about when we talk about women's suffrage.、Mm-hmm. And so、um, the protagonist Gloria, she swears up and down she doesn't want to vote. And she's visited by Diane Nash and Frankie Pierce, and like they're like, "Go vote, go vote!" And so finally, she's like, "You know, do you know why should I vote? You know, do they think it's fine if all these things are happening to you know my community and my people?" We're talking about the black community here, and and, and it's civil rights letters coming to her, right? For, for those who don't recognize the name. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So,、um, do they? This is one of the next to last pieces that I wrote for this, and. 
it just came from the sky, <laughs> literally. <laughs> so, Larissa, I, I, and I wish people could see Larissa in here, <laughs> moving with Faye and Dave's music <laughs> as well. well let's, let's get to your music. Where does your music come from? Uh, I, I, I think that most of the inspiration, if there's not some sort of outside force that's like right about this, uh, like you know, for for a commission or something, right, right, right. It it really all is an expression of my inner world. Um, I am a neurodivergent person, and I spend a lot of time in there, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's sort of like a you know, um, a place that inside of your mind is a place that no one else gets to see unless you release it in some way. And usually the only way to, for, for me to be able to connect people with my internal world is through art. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of my work is about that. It's about what's happening in here. Because um, those, that, those are the only things that I know to be totally true are the things that are inside of myself. Um, so some of my first pieces were really just about, uh, what was happening in my brain at the time and how I was feeling and my relationships to, uh, my different, uh, intersecting identities and my relationship to my community, to my family and, and things like that. Yeah. Well, let's hear a little bit of what goes on in Larissa Meister's head. (laughs) This song is called Rotation. Let's listen. myself breathing along <laughs> with the music <laughs> on that piece, really getting into my body there. Uh, so you're working with the National Ballet this season. Uh, how important are collaborations like that and those kind of commissions to making a living as a composer? Oh, my gosh. Uh, really important. Um, I, I've, I mean, I started writing uh, instrumental music. and I, I also write songs and I also sing pop music and stuff but like I write instrumental music for myself and it wasn't really a there wasn't a thought about that being a part of my income um but I was asked uh to I was commissioned to write a piece for the Nashville Ballet that that premiered last February and that was a huge step for me uh into the possibility that I could do it and help (laughs) pay my mortgage uh, you know, um, and that is really the the way um, that I feel like community organizations like the ballet can really support uh, 
composers, local composers, by asking us to collaborate. I love the feeling of collaborating with someone else um, because it means that the thing that you make is something that you couldn't make on your own. Yeah. And that is, it's such a, a special feeling. Uh, it's It's sort of like there's some kind of alchemy or magic there that happens. Yeah. Well, speaking of collaborations, Faye, Nashville audiences were introduced to you through your collaborations with Abigail Washburn, who plays bluegrass and beyond on the banjo. How has work with musicians here impacted your music making? Uh, it's been uh, playing a big part of my uh, self-growth and my um, understanding and appreciation uh, of uh cultures and music traditions that uh, I wasn't born, not native to me. Um, and uh, I have become, a, I would say, a, a better musician, a better person, uh, and whitens my repertoire or my my uh, recipe uh, of making music and uh, understanding even more of uh, my own instrument and my own background, uh, what new possibilities there could be and there has been. So it's just a tremendous, uh, wonderful experience. And I've collaborated with um, musicians from India, from Bali, I mean, from Indonesia, from uh, uh, Europe or uh, kind of yeah, all over uh, other parts of uh, Asia. Uh, it's uh, And I also have made me realize how similar we all come from because I realized mm. pentatonic scale is not just a, a Chinese thing. It's actually the Irish music has their own pentatonic. Uh, blues and jazz have their own pentatonic. Uh, Indian music, rock have their own pentatonic. So it's just a, a different version. Maybe, you know, the trees are different and then the strings, the weather, the stones when they turn into instruments and then the tonality, the timbre. But they're all, you know, come from the same common ground, uh, like a yearning for connection and that those uh, the five elements uh, coming out of uh, um, the first five harmonic series is really, you know, the physics. So uh, where humans and one string vibrates. So it's like how me have realized, oh, how from the surface, how different we are to fundamentally how similar we are. There's so much that connects us, but there is so much unique flavor in different places as well. Uh, Larissa, what's unique about composing in Nashville? What's what's the flavor that Nashville adds? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, there's there's a beautiful melting pot here. Um, I think uh, in some circles, it's sort of a secret, you know, how, um, how beautiful this uh, community is and, and from how people bring in ideas from so many different places. And I think part of the reason for that is is really because this is Music City, musicians come here hoping to be able to make a living making music. And that just means that there are so many incredibly diverse backgrounds in one place. Um, and we're always working together. We're always learning new things from each other. Every time I walk into a session with uh, a different arranger and composer, we were talking about Nicole Neely earlier in the hallway. Um, I learned something new about the way that their brain works that makes me want to inspect the way that my brain works <laughs> and see if that's in there in me too. Wufei mm -hmm. um, uh, was just saying it's physics. It it really it really feels that way, and it really is true uh, because, as we know, like you know, sound waves are actually 
waves Physical in waves, the air yeah. and they actually you're actually being touched um, by someone's art, by someone's brain. And when we're making music together, we are all connecting with each other. We're all touching each other. We're all absorbing things from each other. And that is that is just the most magical place to be if you want to be making art. Well, composer Larissa Maestro, thank you. Thank you. We've also been joined by Wu Fei. Thank you both for joining us. Dave Radwin's going to stick around with us through the break. Thank you. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation about Nashville's composers, a somewhat less visible part of our vibrant music scene. Join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Cardona, and this is Nashville. There's an increasingly diverse and vibrant community of classical composers and rangers in Nashville, some of whom we met before the break. But who is playing their music? And in this day and age, what kind of living can you make writing in the classical genre? I'd like to welcome my next guests. Kelly Corcoran is a conductor and artistic director at Intersection, a contemporary music ensemble. Kelly, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Also with us is composer and performer Christina Spinet. And Christina, welcome to This is Nashville. Hi, Nina. Thanks for having me. Before the break, we were talking about what makes Nashville's scene unique. Now, Christina, you went to Juilliard. You worked in New York before coming here. If there is any city in the U.S. that is commonly associated with this kind of music, it's New York. So what drew you to Nashville? Well, I visited Nashville on a complete whim for my 30th birthday. And when I came here as a tourist, I just saw myself living here. It was like this vision of the future that I had so clearly. And I also met my future, my now husband um, here in Nashville. So it just seemed like a no brainer to move here. I was struck by how much of a collaborative community I found. the musicians were so welcoming. It's such a welcoming atmosphere, something that is completely different from what I was used to. And I just knew it was the right place. So what was your experience like getting established here in Nashville? It was it was amazingly easy. I reached out to a bunch of people before I moved and just introduced myself. And um, my husband had worked in music venues for a while, and he knew people kind of on the rock side of things, more in production maybe. And I met up with a producer who told me about this classical composer score study group that happened every Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. at um, the arranger and composer Carl Marsh's house. And he's like, you know, I can't go to this breakfast, but you should go. Just, you know, show up and maybe just say that I you know, recommended that you go. And and so I showed up at Karl Marx's house, didn't know anybody, and was just welcomed into this group of amazing composers, Future Man, uh, a bunch of composers and arrangers in town. They didn't know me from anywhere, (laughs) but they just kind of welcomed me in and and made them one of them. And, you know, they have these concerts that happen maybe once every season. And I forget how Kelly and I met but, you know, it was the same with her. I just connected immediately. And, and the great thing is that everyone is very willing to help 
their own, you know, to help each other out. And I don't feel like there's an atmosphere of competition. It's more like camaraderie and we all want the best for everyone else. Well, now, Kelly, you come to this from a little bit of a different angle. You conducted on the staff of the National Symphony for years. You have started your own orchestra here. You've worked all over outside of Nashville as well. Now, from your vantage point, what sets our local scene apart? Yeah, I mean, there are so many incredibly talented composers that live in Nashville. And I think just listening into the conversation, you know, that you all have been having, um, I think you heard a taste of that, right? These incredible composers that bring their own unique identity and voice to the work. And it is Music City. And like Christina said, you know, this collaborative spirit of everybody learning from each other and growing and supporting each other. And it really, truly is a special place. And so I just am filled up every day by the amazing artistry that's happening in our city. Now, your ensemble intersection is dedicated to elevating new and innovative works from from women and non-binary composers. What inspired you to start this? Well, you know, I think contemporary music is is a reflection of our time, of our world today. And of course, there are so many voices that are writing instrumental music. We don't only do instrumental music, but that's you know, primarily what we focus on. And so I think it's just an inherent natural part of the work to ensure that all voices are having an opportunity to be heard. Um, so it really is is not hard to find great composers <laughs> writing music um, that represent so many different identities and experiences. And for Intersection, you commissioned a piece from Julia Adolph. It's called Paw Plume Prowl. Let's listen to it. project called Listen. What should people know about that project? Sure. So this was a project that we did um, during the pandemic where we commissioned over 20 solo works um, by female identifying gender non-conforming and non-binary composers. And they were all about five minutes in length for solo performers um, intended for young audiences, but people could really write whatever they wanted. Uh, Christina was one of the composers that we commissioned. We com- commissioned a, a number of local composers and composers from all around the world as well. Um, and so it was just so exciting to see the, the true um, just fun and playfulness that a lot of composers brought to it, but deep introspection and, and again, just everyone bringing forward their own unique voice. So it, it was a really awesome way for us to just continue to create new relationships with composers in our community and also for the performers to get to interact with the composer and really write a piece truly for that unique performer. So Intersection is, is clearly making places for new music. Uh, 
composer Dave Radwan is still with us. Dave, when it comes to getting your music performed, how has Nashville changed for composers over the years? Well, I would say that Nashville um, definitely has changed, um, you know, dramatically uh, since the time that I first, you know, got here, you know, some decade and a half ago. Um, I still believe that there's, you know, still kind of a ways to go, but there's definitely some market improvement. Um, to have the honor to be asked by John Humes to, you know, reach out to Mary McCallum and create an opera that celebrates um, women's suffrage and civil rights movement and Nashville's role in that was was amazing. And well, also to be asked by, you know, Paul Vasterling to collaborate with the ballet and Oz Arts. So the opportunity, I've been very blessed. Uh, uh, yeah. You seem to have become a go-to guy for writing music that shines a light on the Black experience. How does that feel for you? Well, it's, it's uh, I mean, you would want to say that it's an honor, but also it's, uh, I guess, a responsibility mm -hmm. um, in that, you know, I have a responsibility to, I believe, uh, like I said before earlier, you know, Dr. V.J. Caldwell and, you know, Miss. And the Gilliam and the, those people, church musicians? right, the church yeah. musicians, and making sure that their legacy, um, as far as you know, musical influence, um, lives on. Is that a direction you were trying to take? Not intentionally. <laughs> <laughs> I think it just it just happened. It's like yeah. you know, sometimes you're just called to do things. Right. I think. Now, you know, classical composing is sort of a lesser known area of our music scene. Kelly, what kind of work goes into getting this music out into our community? Yeah, I mean, I, I like the way, you know, there was already some discussion around collaboration and commissioning of works, because I think, and even what Dave was saying about working with these different partners in the community, um, I think it's great when everyone, you know, works together to create new work. And so there is, of course, a financial cost, right? You know, especially when you're working with professional players to make sure everybody gets paid um, and just have the resources available to continue to present new work. So I think that's ongoing work that we do because, you know, there are so many composers, we have yet to hear their music, right? And so I think just continuing to, to um, advocate for resources and funding to continue to support the creation of this new work is a big part of it. Um, then, of course, you know, all the other logistics of instrumentation and uh, venue and, you know, all the stuff. We're doing a concert in February at Cheekwood, actually, where we're going to do a piece by Christina and we're going to present a work by one of her students as well. So we're really excited about that opportunity. Well, Christina, you have done these more kind of traditional collaborations with orchestras for in-person performances, but you've, you've also been kind of an innovator in getting your music out there. Talk to me about how you've used NFTs to reach new audiences. Yeah, so I discovered the world of NFTs and Web3 about two years ago in the summer of 2020. And I saw this open marketplace for artists to be able to sell their work and connect with an audience without all of these larger institutions and third-party intermediaries. And I was just drawn in because I feel like ever since I graduated, I've been fighting against like large institutions to get my music heard. So this was a way for me to find a path to kind of circumvent those traditional avenues and do things my own way. So for those who aren't uh, so actually, familiar, what just quickly, what is an NFT? So 
The NFT stands for non-fungible token. It's basically a digital item that is linked to the blockchain. It could be anything. It could be visual art. It can be music, a poem, a document, anything in the world. It's a digital asset. Well, and then how does that work on your end? So I compose a piece of music um, and there are many different ways to release music, art in the Web3 space. There are platforms that kind of host artists, ones like Async Art and Catalog, and I've been a part of both of those. Uh, But it also gives you the option of creating your own site and kind of selling your own NFTs from your own Web3 compatible site. So Uh, so an artist can basically do anything they want. So you're just having a, a direct connection with your audience in a way, it seems. Exactly. And people connect through their wallet addresses. So once somebody buys a piece of my work, I will be able to contact them. I know exactly who it is by their digital signature. And it's just more more of a direct way uh, to connect with collectors and an audience. Kelly, why is it important to reach new audiences for this music? Well, these are the stories of our time. This, these are the stories of our community. Um, and so I think, you know, inherently um, there's something to experience and learn and grow through listening to this music and engaging with it. And I like to think of Intersections Mantra as ears wide open <laughs> and that our goal is really to kind of shift and expand perspectives and how people think about the world and society and relationships and everything. And I feel like this music is such a vehicle to, uh, you know, just a catalyst to engage in a rethinking about our community and our world. So that's, that's why I think it's great to listen to new music and it's all different. You don't know what you're going to hear until you come. Well, that's conductor Kelly Corcoran. She was joined by composers Dave Ragland and Christina Spinet. Thanks for joining us. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Shout out to our intern, Tori Hoover. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Nina Cardona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody.